Hello and welcome to The Culture Bunker, your pop culture podcast roundup. I'm Andrew Harrison. And I'm Sean Pattenden. Today, yes she can. This week, the Marvel Cinematic Universe expands to take in Ms. Marvel, featuring the first Muslim superhero from their stable. Is it any good? And breathe. We'll be talking to Balearic behemoth Colleen Cosmo Murphy about the resurgence of Chill Out. Plus, we own this city. We own this city. No, not that one. We look at the new series from the showrunners behind Baltimore cop epic The Wire. Police and Thieves, more later. All this and more on today's Culture Bunker. Welcome to the Culture Bunker. Let's say hello to our first guest. The crowd say Cosmo Selector. (laughs) I know it's terrible. New York to London transplant Colleen Cosmo Murphy has been a radio host and DJ and selector since the age of 14 and today hosts Balearic Breakfast, Cosmodelica and Classic Album Sundays Worldwide on Worldwide FM. She also wrote, co-produced and hosted the Classic Album Sunday series This Woman's Work, Sounds of a City series on BBC Six Music and Turntable Tales on BBC Radio 4. She has DJed everywhere and put together numerous compilations of her own and her latest is the extremely relaxed Balearic Breakfast Volume 1 and it's out 10th of June. Hello, Colleen. Hello. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. A bit warm, but cooling down <laughs> as I'm sitting here with you. Yeah, we'll heat up later. Um, as a producer, you've remixed for Rasheen Murphy, The Rapture, Lady Blackbird, Candy Staten, and many more. Has the art of the remix changed over the years, or is it still basically the same nuts and bolts? I think it's changed in the fact that there's so many. You know, sometimes I feel like we have too many remixes, too many records out. I mean, the, the good thing about music nowadays is that it is so democratic that people can put out their own music on Bandcamp, produce things in their own homes. But it also makes it a hugely crowded territory. So it's very hard to kind of stick out. And uh, when I started getting back into remixing, I guess it was the beginning of the pandemic. I had taken a break for a few years. I wanted to do something uh, that was vocal related because I do feel vocal songs and with memorable hooks and great choruses that you can sing along to is something that people can grasp a bit more. So that's kind of my philosophy at the moment. I'm mainly doing remixes of, of just vocal records. But, you know, the art of the remixes is an important thing. I mean, you want if you have a great single out there, you want it to appeal to a lot of different types of DJs and different scenarios. Mm-hmm. So hence, that's why the the art of the remix is still alive and mm-hmm. kicking. Mm-hmm. And especially over lockdown, people did want to dance, whether it was in the kitchens or not. I, I kept <laughs> dancing so much, you know, yeah. in my own home. I, when I was streaming all my radio shows, I was also doing it with video, with a few cameras and green screen yeah. and doing it on Mixcloud Live and, and Twitch TV. And, you know, I'm a DJ, of course, I'm used to being on one side of the turntables, but I started as a dancer, you know? Yeah, I think I think a lot of DJs, I think especially a lot of female DJs actually started dancing first. You can't DJ if you can't dance. That's what I think. <laughs> I like that. I like that. I don't want to say that because there's a few DJs I know who can't. But, uh, <laughs> I don't believe that. No, no names. Who is the most fun to remix for? Who will say, do what the hell you like? They all do. Really? Actually, yeah, they oh, okay. all do. Uh, I, my, my new philosophy on, on remixing is to save myself a lot of trouble. And if I don't have an idea the first time I hear it, I move on. Okay. So I've turned down a lot of remixes just for that reason. I like the song. But I feel the song is the best that it can be, and I couldn't really do anything in, in with my kind of vibe that would make it any better, that would enhance it in any way. So I have turned down just as many as I've accepted. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's it's if I don't hear it in the first listen, 
It's, okay. it's, a, it's a pass for me. That makes sense, though. Um, you work with former Captain Beefheart guitarist Gary Lucas on mm. your project Wild Rumpus. Would Beefheart have made a good remixer? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Only if he was adding vocals. Uh, I think he could do so. I think he would be a great person if he had an instrumental remix. Uh, Don Van Vliet would be a, a fantastic person to add a whole new kind of vocal uh, to it, some poetry, if you will. His What a legend, an absolute legend. Mm. I'd look forward to Beefheart Bangers. <laughs> That's the album title already. There you go, Beefheart Bangers. We'll, we'll yeah. Bangers. Beyond the like Grave. It. Yes. Who else is with us, Andrew Harrison? Also joining us today is a culture bunker OG. Clark Collis is senior writer for Entertainment Weekly in the USA, but in past lives he worked on something called Select Music Magazine. He was also the co-founder of Neon, the fantastic film magazine, and he likes to spend sunny days like this sitting indoors watching movies in the dark, so he gets a thumbs up from us. Clark is also the author of You've Got Red On You, the ultimate behind-the-scenes making of Shaun of the Dead, which is coming out in paperback in September. Hi, Clark. Welcome back. Uh, thank you so much for having me. It's always a delight. So what's the latest on the Clark Entertainment beat then? I uh, Well, it's a few weeks ago now, but I went to the um, Top Gun Maverick Junket oh, uh, in San Diego, and Entertainment Weekly has this, uh, you know, as you, as you know, what we call a rubric uh, called um, Three Rounds With, basically. Mm. So we do, you know, three rounds of... It can be three rounds of cupcakes, but it's always best if it's three <laughs> rounds of... Three rounds of of uh, of booze with, yes. with various people, and so uh, I did this thing where I drank uh, three rounds of cocktails with the younger cast members of, of Top Gun Maverick. Mm -hmm. So to be clear, not Tom Cruise or Jennifer Connelly, but the uh, the uh, the actors who played the the fighter pilots. And, yes. and it was one of those things at the very last minute. The the video director and producer are like, you know, you're on camera for this, right? Well, you're, you're staggering I, about, falling well, over. It was also that you got to think. I was interviewing six people who are, A, like Hollywood actors, so, you know, pretty easy on the eye and, and mm. like a 1% uh, body fat ratio. <laughs> but it also spent, like, all this time training for the movie and so on and so forth. Yeah. And then there's me in a sort of... The Bronze Adonis of South Wales. Yes. yes. Uh, at the end, and I was kind of, you know, with the body you might expect, I mean, not, I mean, with a... Someone with a body wasn't that great before they sat indoors for two years. <laughs> um, and uh, so I was a bit mortified by that, and I was a bit nervous... I um, mean, actually, the wonderful thing about this is that is that uh, because of uh, editing, you barely see me at all, which is fantastic. But I do remember at one, one point they got very rowdy and I was trying to be the voice of authority and they'd been talking about, you know, how they'd actually gone up in jets and stuff. And to my horror, I found myself saying, look, look, I mean, also, I'm, you know, several decades older than these characters. I was like, look, I was flying two man shipmugs out of like Fulton Air Base in the CCF when I was at school. Before you bastards were even born. <laughs> and then I was like, can we cut that out? <laughs> cut that out, right? Uh, which they most have. So you out, Top Gun, Top Gun. Nice one. Right, okay. We want some official entertainment and snap reactions from you. Uh, Ryan Gosling as Ken in the Barbie movie. Uh, I don't, I'm sort of, the picture sort of intrigued me, I have to say. I wasn't, I, I mean, I just don't know what kind of film this is going to be. This is uh, Margot Robbie's playing playing Barbie, mm. and it's sort of, uh, and she's a pretty interesting character, not Barbie, I mean, Barbie herself is quite interesting <laughs> for various reasons, but uh, Margot Robbie's, you know, no fool, and I'm kind of, I mean, I just don't know whether this is something that is going to be for me or not, in the sense of, like, is it going to be, like, just a Barbie and Ken movie, or is it going to be, like, you know, a hilarious, uh, you know, takedown of Barbie and Ken in, in some fashion? Yeah, it's knocking them off the pedestal from where they've ruled with impunity yeah. for he's so a, many decades. He's a good-looking fellow. He uh, is a good-looking fellow. Gosling, I have to say. The joke of the musical, which is apparently happening. I, I, 
seeing the Joker, uh, it's just, it just wasn't for me. I had to have three vodkas before <laughs> seeing it because I knew what kind of experience it would be. And then I had to have four vodkas afterwards. Um, and almost like no fault on the film, really. But it was I, I did not enjoy seeing that film. I, I, I don't know what a musical version of that would be like. But, it would but be I, like that I, film I would, with songs. I would be more I would be looking forward more to the Ken and Barbie movie. Okay, fair enough. And finally, uh, Russell T. Davis bringing back two monsters from the first issue of Doctor Who Weekly in 1979. They've only ever been seen there. This is a deep cut even by my pathetic standards. Do we know what they are? They are. You'll know these, Clark. Beep the Meep and the Wrath Warriors. All for it. Russell T. Davis can do no harm. Can do could do nothing wrong in in my book. I feel like such a fool because I interviewed Russell T um, like 18 months ago just as a sort of retrospective article about the first ever kind of Doctor Who Christmas special. Mm. And the one unusual, the one question I didn't ask, and I would usually ask this, and he wouldn't have given an answer, but I, at no point did it occur to me to say, hey, are you going to come back to write some more Doctor <laughs> Who? Um, but I, 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 mean, I wanted to talk about this later, but, but seeing... Seeing David Tennant and Neil Patrick Harris uh, caper around via Twitter on the streets of Bristol this week has been making me very happy. It warmed your little hearts. Mm -hmm. Before we move on, a reminder. You know what the most exciting thing is about supporting the Culture Bunker on Patreon? Not only do you know how to use the Internet of Things, but you can impress your friends. Even more than that, you can get all our shows early and without adverts because sometimes they get in the way, especially the ones for mattresses. That means daily episodes on politics, science, pop culture and much more, plus all manner of exciting merch and special shows just for you because we like you. Just search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out more. First up, TV. If you are jonesing for some Marvel content since Moon Knight ended, go on, you know you are, then your pangs are over with the arrival of Ms. Marvel to Disney+. Kamala Khan is Marvel's first Pakistani-American hero, a 16-year-old girl from Jersey City whose love of Carol Danvers, a.k.a. Captain Marvel, do you see, leads her to neglect her studies, spend all her time on cosplay, and generally not be a dutiful daughter. Crack on, Kamala. With a largely Asian cast and also Asian writing and directing team, it's a far cry from rich white guys in powered armor, a fact which has inevitably enraged several thousand middle-aged blokes. We've been giving it one-star reviews on IMDb for being woke. But what will we think of it? Here is a taster. Okay, so first off, I just want to say, I get it. You get what? High school. Kamala. Kamala. Another adventure shirt. Cute. Maybe they're right. I spend too much time in fantasy land. That is not you. It's not really the brown girls from Jersey City who saved the world. Did something happen to you? You know why? Did you hear something? Come on, love. What does it feel like? Cosmic. I always thought I wanted this kind of life. But I never imagined any of this. Do you even know what you are? I'm a superhero. Colleen Cosmo Murphy, how marvel are you? I am not very marvel. Ah, in which case, what did you think <laughs> of this? 
I enjoyed it. I thought it was really good. As you said, you know, there's a the first time you have a female Muslim character as a mm-hmm. superhero. And I think the fact that it's taking place in America is a great thing, considering mm-hmm. the Islamophobia that's taken yeah. place over the last two decades. I think it's going to be a great thing for young people to watch. In terms of will I watch it again? Perhaps not. Mm-hmm. Uh, if it's on, of course I would. I thought it was a, a, a great uh, opening episode, and I think it's a, it's a great project that they're doing. I like the fact that behind the scenes, yeah. it's mainly uh, an Asia, you know, people from mm-hmm. Asian heritage, British Asian American, British Asian, Asian and heavily female as well. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. That's good to know. I didn't even realize that, but I thought it, I thought it was really great. It's mm-hmm. just not the kind of thing that I normally watch. I think Clark will probably have a lot more things yes. to say about it than me. <laughs> I mean, there is a whole load of meta going on in here. Kamala is a huge fan of the Avengers in her universe, as if they are rock stars, as if they are, you know, the first episode revolves around Avengers Con, where she's supposedly going to go. And in the classic teenage movie thing, strict mom and dad won't let you go there. And I I just love the spin on that. It's as if the the show is made for people like her who grew up on the MCU movies. What what did you make of Iman Vellani as Kamala herself? Oh, she was fantastic. And, you know, it's just watching it, you remember the brutality that teenagers can inflict upon mm. one another. And she seems to have this kind of positive spirit and, and is somewhat of, a, of an optimist trying to make friends with people despite how they're treating her. And she, she did a great job with that, I thought. I like the fact that it's basically a classic comics wallflower. She's basically Peter Parker, mm-hmm. except as a 16-year-old Asian girl instead of a, a skinny, like, 16-year-old um, white, white boy. Clark. This is very much your beat. What did you think? Uh, I really liked a lot of it. I mean, the the, the cast was terrific. I loved. I mean, so the, the one of the conceits is that um, she's got a, like a huge imagination, mm. and you sort of see that they they literalize that on mm. on 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 camera. So you have a you have a, as you say they're they're going to AvengerCon. Uh, she's going to cosplay as Miss Marvel, um, as, as sorry as Captain Marvel. Uh, and her and her friend are walking along the street, and there. But she wants to make a like a mashup costume. So that, talking about will it be like Doctor Strange, uh, Marvel, or will it be Zombie Marvel? And as she's uh, as as they're talking about the different suggestions, these uh, sort of illustrations appear yeah. uh, on the wall, which I thought was was absolutely terrific. I will say it's kind of Scott Pilgrimy the the whole thing. They, they've clearly sort of borrowed a little bit from from Scott Pilgrim uh, versus the world. I loved. Um, I love the fact that they show cricket at one point. I, I don't think you can yes. ever you can ever uh, overemphasize uh, the possibility that, that that Americans might eventually get into cricket. Um, and I have to say, there was a moment, as you say, that they, they there was a moment that that really touched me or broke my heart really in a way that like half the things in the world disappearing in in the Avengers didn't. When, as you say, so she wants to go to AvengerCon. Her parents aren't keen. But her parents come up with this plan whereby the, the daughter and the father will go as Hulks, basically. Mm-hmm. They've got a Hulk costume for her. And then he dresses up as Hulk and sort of, you know, is, is painted green. And then they unveil this plan to her. And, and, and he sort of jumps in through the door dressed as Hulk and they assume she'll be delighted. But of course, somewhat predictably, she's mortified by this idea, mm. and it clearly breaks their heart. Yeah. And I was just sitting there being like, this is awful. I mean, this is just, you know, yeah. in, in the, the way that they want dad. us to be. Yeah. I was like, oh, no, this is this is like, and it just makes me, I don't know, as I get older, I kind of think how much my own parents, you know, went out on a limb to support me and how I would sort of just routinely throw it back in their faces. <laughs> and I thought, and I yeah. thought, I mean, not that not the, the lead character is a mean 
character. And and certainly I can empathize with not wanting to go to Comic-Con with uh, with your parents. Actually, I'd quite like to go to Comic-Con with my parents. I would now. Yes. I'd love it now. <laughs> Going when I was 16, no, but now would yeah. be just fantastic and, and awesome. What, what What is great about it, I think, is that there's not actually an awful lot of super action in this. It's it's a family comedy. Right. It is like, here is the world of, um, it, uh, it's an Asian family in Jersey City with everything that goes with that and people who never really appear on screen, seen through the lens of Marvel. But what it's really about is controlling mom and dad trying to keep a lid on things. And I just found it really heartwarming. Well, yeah, and her powers, I mean, she doesn't really get any powers until right at the end. And there's also no antagonist that I could, I mean, maybe the antagonist the, is, is like I said, the end of episode one, two. Yeah, yeah. End of episode two okay. is the first time we get an antagonist, which I think is quite a bold move. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, by then you're sort of a movie's length yeah. into it, you know. Um, but this but is no, why... I, 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 mean, I mean, I'm someone, I mean, I grew up, you know, with Judge Dredd and then all those sort of British comics artists that took a lot of, you know, square-jawed American superheroes and filled them with pus and awfulness. And that's sort of more my thing. I mean, yeah. while watching Miss um, Marvel, I was simultaneously watching The Boys, and The Boys is, frankly, very much more more, more my speed. Mm. Um, but you can't criticize something for not being, you know, the thing. Something you know, else. Yes, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, Sean, I'm all for it. Sean, what did you think? I think it's interesting, and I, I'm very, very much behind it. But... The fact that I think to placate an American audience, they've got to make it so mainstream and they've got to make her so cute. She's an update on a Disney princess. There's not that much difference between them. She's not necessarily a superhero at the start. They're playing it very soft and easy. That makes it more difficult for me to actually get into it because there are no rough edges on the first episode. And I've done one and a half now. And I think you are getting the glimpses of that coming through. But the cleverness and the wit of it hasn't quite come through yet because they're still saying, look, it's fine to have her as the lead character. She's fantastic, though. She looks like a, you know, she looks like Bambi, as I say, the update of Bambi and a Disney princess sort of meld into one. She looks incredible, but I wanted a bit more edge. But then I'm I'm saying the same as as Clark and Colleen really is. It's that it's not for that. It has a different function, and it's really really good that they put it out now. One of our listeners, Chris Howard, heard an ad for this on the pod, uh, podcast and thought it was Miss Marple. <laughs> I, would, I would love the Marvel Cinematic Universe's Miss Marple would be excellent. Well, they might bring in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She might solve some cases. Yeah. Um, I, I have a suspicion that the kind of the darkness is going to start coming through because, so, so you know, the way yeah. she gets her powers intimately connected to, you know, a disappeared family member and the partition of India and the deaths of many, many people. So there's, I think there's a bit of grit there somewhere that may Well, like WandaVision, which took you in one direction. You thought, well, why is this still going? And then the clues start making sense. Hmm. And then the Easter eggs at such. And, oh, I see what it's trying to do within that universe. I'm presuming that that will happen with this hmm. one here. Say so they've only put two out now, haven't they? Because it's yeah. weekly. Yeah. Um, do sort of review bombing pylons like the one that Miss Marvel is getting have any real effect, do you think? I mean, it's got, it, it's been well received by critics everywhere. And yet it's got a 66 uh, rating on IMDb with loads of one-star reviews all saying the same thing, which is basically this is woke because the characters in it are not white. But is that Mr. Angry of Pearly? It's Mr. Angry of... Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I don't really ever read those ones because I think they're the fly-by-night ones and Marvel is not going to stand on whether a couple of people think that it's too self-consciously politically correct. What does uh, in-house Marvel expert Fred think about it? He wasn't keen. Really? So I think that's quite a good barometer. So we see all Marvel, and we have been seeing all Marvel for the last six, seven years. And he has his favourites, and we sat down to watch it together. And I think because of the cutie girly aspect, mm. but we weren't that sold on WandaVision, and then he went and 
you know, he binged all of it at one point. Yeah. So I think it might be similar for that. Might try and put it on again for Did he do you like Doctor Strange? Oh, he loves Doctor Strange. I cried during Doctor Strange. <laughs> I, just just to be he clear that I love Doctor Strange. Strange. Yeah. yeah, when he got really Sam Raimi, when the Dutch angles like sort of started flying. Yeah. I, I I not because of Marvel, I just I just wet because Sam Raimi was back. <laughs> he made back. me so happy. Yeah, but we're Guardians of the Galaxy round Ooh. our way was so it's just waiting. When's it coming out? When's it coming out, Clark? When's it coming out? I think it's next year. Oh, <laughs> Sorry. One thing I, apologies can't, to Marvel. Can't you make it quicker, year. Clark? Surely you have connections. I have to tick one box for this for ex- exceptional uh, performances. In episode two, there's a bit where her mate, Nakia, decides to run for the mosque council, which is essentially a kind of. Uh, you know, the bit Amer- in the mosque is great, though. Yeah. That scene actually should be said when they actually mention the separation of women yeah. and men. I just thought that's really yeah. brave. Some of the stuff's really good. Well, it's like, it's a, it's a, a transposing of the, the traditional I'm running for high school president except it's not mm. high school it's a mosque yeah. so they have to go and work the crowd at, um, at, a, at a celebration and identify all the little cliques and the clique that's got power is the Illumin aunties all the aunties <laughs> who are really in charge of everything and I thought that was yeah. uh, there's more levels of meta there mm. than uh, mm. I felt like I got my Disney Plus subscriptions worth on that <laughs> I'm enjoying it I'm going mm. to keep watching it but yeah. then frankly Marvel could make you know the Marvel Universe's, uh, you know, guide to home maintenance, and I'd watch that, wouldn't I? <laughs> I am uncritical. <laughs> now, who's up for a Balearic breakfast? That's the title of the mind-massaging new compilation put together by our guest, Colleen Cosmo-Murphy. Balearic Breakfast Volume 1, out now on Heavenly Records. It's an hour and more of cosmically calming inner ear music inspired by her Worldwide FM show and featuring remixes by artists including Ashley Beadle, the late and much-loved Andrew Weatherall and Killeen herself. We're going to be talking about it and life as a globally transcendent sound explorer after this track from the album. This is Vapor by Mild Life, Killeen's Cosmodelica remix. Killian, what's a Balearic breakfast? Is it when the eggs float off under their own steam and the bacon is waving at you? <laughs> Something like that. Hmm. I started Balearic breakfast as a radio show during the pandemic. I had been filling in for Giles Peterson on Worldwide FM on Tuesday mornings in the summer. Temporarily, I had a show called Summer Staycation. It's when many of us were locked in our homes and weren't going anywhere. Uh, you know, I didn't go anywhere on holiday like like most people, I think, in the UK. And you had to kind of have a staycation. But then Giles said, just keep the show, actually. It's doing really well. So when September came around, I realized I couldn't call it summer staycation anymore. So I put the word out to my listeners, hey, looking for a new show title. And somebody, a friend of mine, my friend Lee Z, came back and said, how about Balearic Breakfast? And I really liked it because it's kind of a, has an association with music that is somehow transcendental and allowing you to escape your immediate surroundings. And it's also not a specific genre of music, so it's mm. all-encompassing, which is one of my favorite parts of the show. Well, I've got a mate who's big into this stuff, and we go to him for Balearic adjudications. This record, is it Balearic <laughs> or not? And he'd say, yes, it is. No, it isn't. What's your definition? Because the listeners need to know this. Well, it's kind of like trying to define jazz. Mm. which is very hard to define uh, because it is 
it encompasses so many different types of sounds. I think originally you could say, oh, it's music that was played on the Balearic Islands, mainly in the 1970s and 80s when DJs started hmm. playing in clubs and restaurants. And there's a few different types of sounds. You have the Balearic beat, which is more pop and dance and something danceable for the dance floor. And then he had more chill out kind of sounds a la Cafe Del Mar where Jose Padilla was a yeah. resident and he did all those great compilations in the 1990s. I mean, I do feel a bit funny being an, Amer an American hosting a show called Balearic Breakfast because, I mean, honestly, the only reference I'd ever heard to Ibiza was in Life on Mars, you know, David Bowie singing <laughs> about the Norfolk Bras. I couldn't have pointed to it on a map until the 1990s, until the Cafe Del Mar album started coming out. Um, but I have a very probably different approach. So I try to do what is traditionally called Balearic, mm. whether it's the chill outside or the downside, but making it even more all-encompassing music that I feel takes you to another time and place and space. And that could be anything from jazz to I've even played classical, contemporary yeah. classical on the show before. Well, there's a, there's a track on this. I think it's actually the very first track. By, um, I'd never encountered this before, but Joan Biblioni, who appears to be a kind of Spanish Finney Riley of Dorussi Colour, mm. and she's like 70 and he. doing this. He. Yeah, yeah. I thought it was Joe. Oh, I was in Joanna. Joanna Biblioni. There you go. See, from that's, Mallorca. That's how little I knew about this. So he <laughs> is like 70. Tell us about him. Well, he's my only proper Balearic musician <laughs> yeah. on there, so I'm glad that he's leading the way. Mm. Uh, he, I believe, started in the 1980s as a guitarist and composer, and he's been making music, some of it self-released. Not a huge, huge following, but what a beautiful, beautiful records that he's put out. And he's there's been a recent interest in his work with different reissues of his albums and compilations. This song that I put on as the opening song, Safaska, is just a beautiful you know, completely dreamy, chilled out. So mm. I like how you described him as almost like a Balearic Vinnie Riley from uh, Derudi Column. Very, very similar sound. And um, yeah, just I'm I'm glad that there's at least one Balearic musician on there. <laughs> yeah. So you you learned your trade and cut your teeth um, at uh, the Loft with the great David Mancuso, a, a legendary DJ. Um, uh, it, how did you come to be the Robin to his Balearic Batman? <laughs> okay, well, I was I was already DJing before I met David. Mm. I had been on the radio for several years and had done some, you know, played out as a DJ because of college radio, you know, doing nights at different places in New York City. But when I went to David's David Mancuso's Loft party, which was a private party in his home at that point on Thursday. Street between Avenues B and C in Al Alphabet City in New York City. I went in about 91, 92, and I was just transformed. It was uh, kind of like Alice in Alice in Wonderland falling yeah. down the hole and like coming into this space that had absolutely no information on the outside. He he was a legend. I mean, he started his parties in his home in 1970 based on the Harlem Rent parties, and they became the foundation for club culture as we know it. Now, these listeners will probably not know what a rent party was. So explain a rent party. Okay, when a lot of African Americans migrated from the South to New York City and to the North to get jobs uh, in the early 1920s, they weren't really allowed to go to any clubs as such. So in Harlem, especially, a lot of people, it's kind of like the blues and Shabin's parties, yeah. uh, Shabin parties here in the UK, uh, where they would open their own doors and play music and have you know, drinks and people would pay a contribution at the door. So it helped them pay their rent hmm. and, and have a good time and party with their own communities. So it was very much based on that kind of uh, philosophy. And David was a huge supporter of civil rights, a huge 
uh, supporter of women's liberation, gay liberation, and started throwing parties in his own home in Greenwich Village as early as 1968, but unofficially. Mm. And then in 1970, uh, on the 14th of February, Valentine's Day, he opened his doors and started a party called Love Saves a Day as a weekly party on a Saturday night. He he did a lot for, for the culture because he also won a landmark case with the Department of Consumer Affairs in the early 1970s. They wanted to shut him down. But because he didn't sell alcohol and it was a private party, he was able to stay open, which kind of made a whole ruling for all of the private members clubs that followed in, in you know, after the after the loft. There you go, listeners, tips on how to pay your rent. Just yeah. launch a legendary loft party in your own home. Now, you've been running classic album Sundays for like, it's like 2010, isn't it? Now, it's a yeah. long time. Obviously, I had to go into uh, into hibernation a bit during during lockdown. What what's in in just twelve and more years of doing this? What what are the um, the sessions that really stand out? Where you learned things about these albums? Because you've done loads of them now. Yeah. Well, actually, just to just a just to say, we didn't go into hibernation. Mm. We just went online, mm-hmm. and it's all, actually yeah, gotten stronger. Thing, yeah. So we have a Patreon as well mm. with our album club, our yeah. monthly album mm. club, and pub quiz online. Uh, the best guest. It's so hard because there's so many different types of music. Julian Cope is always a, a wonderful person to interview yeah. because you have to stay on your toes. The first time I think I interviewed him was back in the early 90s for Peggy's Suicide, and I've interviewed him for Six Music as well. But I did a live event with him at the John Peel Center, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> which was just amazing because he's just so out there and his brain works so quickly and it mm. just goes to all these other places you really have to be on his toe on your toes and i was really complimented by his wife also an american who said wow you were really good you're the only person who's really been able to handle julian in a live situation <laughs> so he was wonderful um there's so many uh john grant is another mm. great one uh just because we are we're so much alike and same age and both american living in in europe and have a very similar uh musical background and he's just such a real person mm. like completely 100% real no artifice at all. He wears his heart on his sleeve. I loved interviewing Jazzy B for Club Classics Volume 1 mm. uh, from Soul to Soul's classic album. He was on fire. We did a great event at the British Library. There's, there's been so many. I've been so lucky. I think the one that probably wowed me the most was interviewing Nick Mason Yeah, um, from Pink Floyd and doing that as part of the V&A Museum's exhibition, Their Mortal Remains. Being able to do that was like, wow, when I started Classic Album Sundays in my friend's pub in 2010, <laughs> I had no idea that I'd be yeah. sitting here a few years later with Nick Mason talking about one of the most classic albums of all, t- of all time. The next one you've got up is Miles Davis's Sketches of Spain mm. on the 29th of June. I'm amazed you haven't done that already. I know, <laughs> me too. I'm a huge Miles Davis fan. This is for our online album club. Yeah. And in a sense, we're able to go a little bit deeper So because we're not putting bums on seats, mm. you know, and selling tickets. There's just people who have a membership and they come along to the to the album club on Zoom. And, and I also record the presentations to send out to the members who are unable to join at that time. Sketches of oh, Miles is one of my favorite musicians of all mm-hmm. time. I mean, I, I don't think I'm alone in saying that. But Sketches in Spain is an album that just brings me somewhere else. And I said to the members, let's let's do an album based around summer holidays. 
And I nominated that one. So, you know, we do a vote. And I kind of felt a little guilty that mine actually won because Sketches of Spain does bring me right yeah. down to Andalusia with its opening notes. It's just an amazing album. What would you love to do but you haven't done yet? Oh, gosh, there's so many different people. I mean, of course, I mean, who wouldn't want to interview Paul McCartney? Mm. You know, I mean, he's he's one hero I would like to interview. Uh, there's some heroes you don't want to interview, like Van Morrison. Um, <laughs> I would, I mean, Astral Weeks is one of my favorite albums of all time. And Joni Mitchell as well, I have to say. She's one of my favorite artists of all time, too. But I think I'd be too scared to interview her. But Paul McCartney seems like he's a bit more gentle. <laughs> and uh, I would love to interview him sometime. I don't know if that will ever happen, but I'm just putting that out there. You never know. Well, we understand he's an avid listener, so we definitely will. <laughs> um, later in the show, we're going to be for forcing both of our guests to choose the mm -hmm. single greatest album ever. So maybe one or two suggestions will come from there. Certainly. Now, every week we ask our guests to bring in a current favourite track of theirs as a service to our faithful listeners. Clark Collis, what is yours and why do you love it? Uh, my track is Falling Apart Right Now uh, from the album Cruel Country uh, by the mighty uh, Wilco, who are most definitely one of my favourite bands. This is sort of the first album they've done. It's not the first album they've done in a while, but I, I believe it's the first album where they've sort of been in a room together uh, bashing it out um, and uh, it's just wonderful. Two, three, four. <laughs> The 2024 general election will make history, not least because it's the first one a Prime Minister looks like he's actively trying to lose. Stay on top of the vote and cut through the nonsense with Oh God, What Now? The original No Bullshit Politics podcast. With me, Dorian Linsky, plus top journalists, comedians and commentators. Twice a week, we follow Richie Sunak's doom spiral, keep a critical eye on Keir Starmer's progress, look at the big issues that will shape the vote and have a desperately needed laugh as well. We're proudly independent, so we don't have to stick to fake balance or give a weak both sides take on any issue. We can call it all as we see it, and we can swear too. So if you're looking for election coverage that captures how people really feel, try Oh God, What Now? High quality analysis, brilliant conversation and jokes twice a week, with extra special editions in the run up to the election too. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Now, onto TV, and we own this city. It tells the true story of police corruption in Baltimore after the death in police custody of Freddie Gray in 2015. We Own This City is made by David Simon and George Pelicanos, whose fictional series The Wire, of course, was also set in Baltimore and ran from 2002 to 2008. So why tread the same ground? Why cast some of the same actors from The Wire and... What more is there to say about police brutality and systemic corruption? Turns out, let's listen to the trailer. Senor Pablo Escobar is the police. In a war 
You need warriors. On the ground. Get down on the ground. You have enemies. In a war, civilians get hurt and nobody does anything. In a war, you count the bodies and then you call them victories. The series centres, of course, around the death of Freddie Gray, as mentioned, and the subsequent setting up of the Baltimore Police Department low-profile gun trace task force. Hmm, sounds like that's going to go well, everybody. <laughs> Clark, you live in the States. Do you remember the Freddie Gray event, first off? Uh, yes, uh, yes, I do. Although, you know, over the last few years, it's been hard to keep track of, of, of one, you know, atrocity um, after another. It, it was interesting to watch this with... Uh, in the same week as watching Miss Marvel, just because of, you know, with Mar- Miss Marvel, you still, even though it's it's pretty sharp and 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 you know it looks great, you do feel you're sort of being spoon fed the story a little bit, mm-hmm. and there is like a part of my brain that's like, come on, let's get to the bit where you know buildings are being demolished or what have you. Mm-hmm. This uh, we own this city. On the other hand, within ten minutes, I was like, oh, I'm going to really have to concentrate here. <laughs> I'm going to have to put on my my big boy viewing pants and really, you know, turn every computer off and try to figure out what's going on because it does, it throws you in there. It's got, mm. I think, three timelines, uh, maybe more. And early on, I was like, I mean, I mean, one of the stars is, is John Bernthal, who plays this corrupt cop. And you're introduced to him early on. You can tell, oh, well, in this timeline, he's got this bad haircut. Mm. And in this other timeline, the bad haircut has grown out a bit, but now he's got an awful mustache. And you're like, okay, I will try, I can keep hold of, like, if I keep hold of John Bernthal's different hair, then that'll be fine. And then the bugger disappears for like almost yeah. the entire first episode. So I was totally lost at, at I wasn't totally lost at sea. But it's funny, I was, I was watching it with, um, uh, our you know mutual friend Jane, who had seen the first episode before and was nice enough to rewatch it with me. I mean, we ended up watching the whole thing, um, but she kept on so she, when, when she was rewatching the first episode, she kept on saying, "Oh, I see. Oh, I see. I get that. Oh, that's quite funny." You know, um, it really does uh, demand your attention. I don't know if they needed to to sort of slice it up uh, in this fashion. On the other hand, I was I was gripped, and we watched the whole thing in 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 two nights. I think. Wow! Did you watch The Wire originally? Yes, um, and funnily enough, I was sort of I was at I was at home with my mum this week and was sort of in between doing various things, rewatching bits of The Wire. Which this now is seems... what you say to your mum on a quiet night. Should we watch something about brutal gang murders and the drug trade in Baltimore? And you're well, she's always, a great right. lady. She says fine. Yeah. yeah she's well, she's more of a Sopranos range. fan, really. Yeah. <laughs> but it's funny how now I mean I mean The Wire was so groundbreaking because of its you know, vast landscape and, and the fact that it was very much not like a crime of the week and, and these storylines would go on and on and be told in tiny little snippets. But watching that now, it 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 seems relatively conventional compared to what it looked like at the time. Plus, I have to say, either Baltimore has gotten much worse or David Simons and George Pelicanos, the executive producers there, a view of the world has become more pessimistic because watching watching the wire now you're like okay so <clears throat> if they could only get rid of a couple of bad apples and make the policing <laughs> a, you know yeah. sort of shift <laughs> the emphasis in policing yeah. you know tactics then maybe things could work out whereas whereas we uh, own this city is is it's just like this is terrible and and things can only get worse well as you know it's based on a book who, mm. which was written by a journalist who worked for the Baltimore Sun who saw all this as it happened Andrew I presume you've watched the wire how 
different is this? And Clark is saying it. It is. It, although the setting and many many of the faces are the same, mm. and certainly the themes are the same. It is very different, I think, and and not for the better. The Wire. I remember watching the first three episodes of The Wire and thinking, "What in the hell is going on here? I have no idea. I'm completely lost at sea." And then on episode four, it all clicked, and I was completely hooked. It was. It is the original slow burn mm-hmm. where commitment mm-hmm. is is repaid, and the reason commitment is repaid is that The Wire is stuffed with fantastic characters. It's stuffed with brilliant antiheroes, compelling villains, fantastic um, multi-dimension, multi dimensional nuanced characters who you care about, even though you know many of them are sending themselves straight to hell. I really didn't get that at all from We Own This City, possibly because it's a limited series of six. It doesn't have time to go into those characters. Mm-hmm. But worse than that, it didn't seem to actually show a great deal of interest in those characters. And Bernthal's character, Officer Wayne Jenkins, is a kind of like, hey, you guys, what are you doing? Sort of like, mm. you know, a a, 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 uh, a very bouncy, very kind of alpha male, um, you know, a guy who's clearly, you know, two seconds from going off the leash and committing crimes himself. Mm. But we don't really get much more depth than that. And very few of the other characters, you know, compared to the experience with The Wire where, you know, Bubbles and Omar and, you know, all the cops, you know, you felt they had an interiority. And these guys, you know, it it demands attention, but I honestly don't think it repays it very much. Oh, Mm. Colleen. I loved it, actually. (laughs) Um, I'm a huge fan of The Wire, and I had so much empathy for all of the characters on whatever side. I think, of course, in six episodes, it is very difficult to develop that same kind of a relationship with the character. And I agree with Clark that it it takes a while to actually figure out what's going on. I think it was episode three where everything started to fall into place. Mm. But I did think that there was a, a lot of depth of character that was revealed over the course of the six episodes, including with Wayne Jenkins. I mean, you can clearly see he's a narcissist. Mm. He can't even help himself. He actually Mm. believes what he's actually saying when he's saying it. He doesn't think he did anything wrong. And I think there is quite a bit of that probably throughout the police force. Mm -hmm. I mean, and and, um, I think it addresses an issue that's, and I agree as well, The Wire almost seems a bit more optimistic Mm. in a sense than we own this city because... When We Own This City came out, we're talking this is post-George Floyd and all the other killings mm-hmm. I mean, that have been going on for decades and decades and decades in the United States, especially um, with, with policemen um, killing black males. Mm. Um, but this, I think, shows that it's institutional. The fact that the, uh, the person from the Department of Justice, is it Nicole Steele, I yeah. think yes, is the character's Steele, name, and yes. she's actually not a real real-life character. She's a composite of, of different characters. She's trying to unlock why this keeps happening, mm, and you mm. find out that it's institutional. Mm. And, you know, you see the police commissioner who you think's trying to do the right thing, and I think in his head he is trying to do the right thing. And you see also, I think for me, the, the African-American cops and how they kind of fall into playing along with the the crimes that are committed and led by the, the mm. white cops. Mm. And... Uh, and doing it in a sense where they're almost, I mean, I don't want, everyone's accountable for their actions. Mm. But, you know, it's a little more difficult, I think, for them to stand up to a white cop to say, I'm not going to do that. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I mean, how that would probably affect their career and how they would be promoted. So for me, I think there was there was a lot of empathy mm. for a lot of the characters. Maybe a, a couple there wasn't at all. Um and I, I thought it was great. It was six episodes. I binge watched it as well. And this is the kind of drama that I love, mm. things that are based on historic truths. Mm. 
Mm. Fantastic. We must mention the credits, which do blur, blur what we're seeing on screen in the actors and also some of the real-life footage. Yeah. And this incredible bass. So if you are lucky to have a subwoofer with your uh, soundbar on your oh. TV, as some of us are, the bass is so high on this, and it just sounds like people in cars passing by mm. playing whatever music. It is incredible. I think it's really beautifully designed. I absolutely loved it. I can't claim that I'm understanding every single bit and I'll probably go back and watch it. I'm on two and a half. Mm. But I was reading with David Simon some of the stuff he was talking about and the fact that some of those wire characters have been put in the cast, usually in a polar opposite side, is about the way that it's systemic, it's not about personality, that actually it is interchangeable. And we own the city being such a clever title. Mm. That says it all. And about a system which pits everyone in the same playground as it were and we're all the same mm. police and thieves i mean it's 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 so good and it's so rich yeah i really really lapped yeah. it up as i say i did have to rewind some bits because if you just start you know if your phone does ping or you just think i'll oh, go and have a cup of tea you do mm. have to pause rewind and check what's going yeah. on also we were saying it is quite thick baltimore u.s i don't know about you you two are used to u.s accents us brits from fine well I, it didn't hard. bother me because i have now have no intention of going to baltimore so <laughs> yeah. ever uh, yeah. so the fact that i can't um necessarily understand what anybody's saying is uh is near the hill. <laughs> that I will say as a sort of postscript that watching the wire at your mum's house uh on Sky is interesting because Idris Elba is also the pitch man for Sky. Mm. So you have you're watching yeah, Idris Elba yeah. committing terrible crimes and then it's the adverts and he's like, hey, why don't you uh yeah. yeah, yeah, I love The Wire too. Absolutely mm. fine. But I imagine that looks completely staged compared to this. Yeah, mm. I would really recommend this. I think Andrew's looking slight. I'm persevering with it. It's just I, I felt that it was like The Wire with all my favourite bits of The Wire stripped away. Mm. I that. think it's conceptual. It's because it's more conceptual and it's meant to be difficult and they've just screwed that chronological order. <laughs> you can't yeah. get out of this mess. That's, I mean, that's true. How it feels. Yeah, I mean, I find... I find how do you unravel I, it? I found the, the chronological uh, slicing and dicing needlessly obfuscatory. It doesn't gain anything. Oh, I thought it did, actually. I thought it did, because then the character, one of the characters in the beginning who you think is playing a minor part ends up becoming probably the most significant character at Mm -hmm. the end. I don't want to say who that is, because for for listeners that haven't yet watched the show. Mm-hmm. I, I will say, I think it was the penultimate episode I was, I was watching with our friend Jane and there was a point and I said, is this happening now? <laughs> and she said, yes. And I said, what, now, now? And she was like, no. And I knew by that point, I knew exactly yeah. what she meant. <laughs> then, you know? now. Yeah, not said, now, then now. Not now, not now, now. That would be crazy. It's then, now. Let's have another tune. Colleen, you're going to choose one for us now. What would that be? Well, recently this week, I had a request on my Balearic Breakfast show for this really great pop song, very independent, uh, Lapel Records, I believe they're called, L-E-P-E-L, and the song was by Kari, and it's called Captive, and I played it on my Balearic Breakfast show, and it's just such an amazing, amazing song, so I'm encouraging people to go out and find that. Um, but I'm going to do a self-promotional plug, and... Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> I recently remixed Hard Feelings, which is a project by Joe Goddard from Hot Chip and Amy Douglas, who's a singer from Brooklyn, who's worked with Roisin Murphy and Horse Meat Disco. And together they are called Hard Feelings. And they asked me to do a remix of one of their songs, Love Scenes. And I did kind of a a throwback house mix that's kind of akin to the Def Mix remixes by Frankie Knuckles and David Morales. And it's out on Domino Recordings now. Here we go then. Hard feelings with love scenes, Cosmodelica mix. You and me, you and me, yeah. kiss me on my 
we finish with a bit more music. With the news that it's the 40th anniversary of a certain album by a certain British pop band and Andrew subsequently dancing on the table and putting it on repeat as he would, we thought we must delve where we rarely delve. We often ask about the best song ever, but what will our guests and ourselves proffer up when it comes to the greatest album of all time? What will we choose? Obviously, the man is saying a massive no to clearing our choices, but we'll put them on the playlist. The choices are What's Going On by Marvin Gaye, Exile on Main Street by The Rolling Stones, The Lexicon of Love by ABC, Mm. and Hegira, chosen obviously by a massive hippie in the room somewhere. Cosmo, let's start with you, as I call you now. What have you gone for? Which one of those was yours? Well, oh my gosh, I could have said Hegira. And it's always like that's in my top 10 and they're, they're kind of swimming around in there. But yeah, I'm the one that shows what's going on. Mm-hmm. And I think it's why? wonderful. Yeah. This album came out in 1971 and both Marvin Gaye's story at that time is so interesting how Motown didn't want to put it out. And in fact, you know, Barry Gordy said when he heard what's going on, it was the worst song ever. <laughs> <laughs> But these themes also we can still relate to today. And the other thing I love about this album is it's universally known. So many of us can sing the entire album without even knowing that the lyrics are stored in our head. So with its themes, with what was going on with the artist at that time, standing up for his own creativity and it hence it becoming one and then it becoming one of the biggest albums of all time. And just for its musicality and, and its popularity, that's the reason why I'm going for that one. Is it perfect though? Are there any songs you'd lop off? Nope, it's perfect. It's a sweet. <laughs> it's a, it's actually one piece of music to me. Ah, oh, good answer. Um, any other standout tracks? I mean, all of the. In fact, it's it's the entire album consumed Nothing as a whole. Like, there's Inner City Blues. I mean, mm. it, it's it, that's a great song, but it is the whole thing as one piece of music that really, really makes me say it's one of the best albums. Mm-hmm. Now, it's probably rare that any of our listeners have never listened to this exactly. album, but they may have not have listened to it for a while. Give us your one minute pitch about why they should put it on this weekend. Marvin Gaye's What's Going On addressed themes in 1971 that are still going on today. Themes about (laughs) environmental degradation, being overtaxed, war, pollution. I mean, there's so many different themes that go in there. Interestingly enough, he never speaks about race on the album. He said he wanted it to be listened to by everybody. But of course, this is coming from a black American man. And that would, you know, his perspective, of course, would encompass that anyways. Race, of course, is a big topic right now um, as well. So in a sense, it does sort of address it because he's talking about his cousin, I think, happened to be in the Vietnam War. A lot of young black men went off to to war in Vietnam, and he's singing about that experience as well. Um, It's musically incredible. He did a different thing with his vocals. He started to sing quieter, closer to the microphone, which he ended up doing for the rest of the 1970s and his other classic albums, which had a very, very different feel, more along the romantic tip. And also great string arrangements as well, just beautifully well put together. Very good. Collis, I wonder what you chose. Uh, I did indeed choose Exile on Main Street. Although I have to say, as a teenager, uh, I spent many, many hours uh, feeling sad and listening to Hajira. So that's, uh, that, is a, uh, that is a great choice. Um, it's funny you were saying, you know, what's perfect about the Marvin Gaye album. And uh, in a sense, there's nothing perfect about Exile on Main Street. That's sort of its appeal. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's just, it's just this uh, shambling, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, to 
album masterpiece made by the Stones. I mean, it's what I've always been a Stones guy and not a Beatles guy and feel obliged for some reason to continue waging a war that no one's cared about. <laughs> yeah, because the Stones in, need in 50, your help. Right, they? in they 50 need years. From you. They don't have so many tickets at the moment. Um, and I have to say, being in America, it's it's so much fun when someone mentions the Beatles and I'm like, no, nah, I just don't like them. And, <laughs> and you can tell. You can tell that they don't know what to do yes, because they, they can hear my accent. And so mm. they're like, well, he's from the land of the Beatles. But, and yet he's not saying, so, I mean, yes, the Beatles has some, a few good tunes. But um, why I, should everyone listen to this, Clark? Why, why, why? This it, weekend, should they be sticking It on? is just one, even though you wouldn't, you know, use the word banger about any of them, I don't think. It is one, I mean, starting with Tumbling Dice, it is just one great track uh, after another of uh, absolute kind of consistency as i said earlier i mean i've got other favorite albums mm. but usually there's a track on there where you're Something like oh i'm not too sure about this or it's just like um you know totally out of sync with the rest of the album and i just think you know this is just a perfect encapsulation of the band even though i mean there is this sort of myth around the album that they for tax reasons you know all went and lived in uh the south of france and recorded this album in a house which to some extent is true but when you more read up about it i mean they 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 did record it in little tiny bits uh you know all over the world um but you know it's mick and keith and they're sort of for the time experimental early 70s Pomp before, you know, uh, yeah. Keith got overly devoured by drugs. And, and and the songs got flabbier, didn't they? But this is this. A little bit. I mean, it is. I mean, you know, this is a sort of, they do have this golden run of Sticky Fingers and XL on Main Street and, and all really all through the 70s and, and up to Tattoo You, really, which is actually Tattoo You is, is sort of a, an album of outtakes from uh, previous recordings, which is remarkable because that's a, a classic album in itself, mm. even though it doesn't. You know, it's basically stuff they found down the back of the sofa. Mm. So you'd think it would be a lot of, you know, garbage, but but it's it's absolutely fantastic. Uh, sorry, I'm kind of like uh, just filling up talking about Exile. <laughs> Exile's <laughs> my favorite Stones very, album too. Very, it's an amazing very album. Here. Andrew, are you going to surprise us and tell us what you've chosen? <laughs> well, it's going to be a huge surprise, and this, the reason we're doing this bit is because it's 40 years of the lexicon. Wow, <laughs> 40 years of the lexicon of love. This mm. very very month, mm -hmm. 40 years since this fantastic. Utterly perfect record came out. I was listening to it this morning. And Tell it us sounds like, like it was it. made yesterday, doesn't mm -hmm. it? It's glittering, gorgeous, absolutely glorious record about love and all that goes with it. The ups, the downs, the hanging arounds. Four singles, but everything else could be a single as well. Mm -hmm. Even the little 90-second orchestral rearrangement of Look of Love at the end. Mm -hmm. um, Poison Arrow, Look of Love, All of My Heart. Uh, tears are not enough. Mm. Martin Fry in the pomp of his Baco foil suit glory. <laughs> mm. It sounds like Nelson Nelson Riddle made a record with Chic. <laughs> it sounds like Rhapsody in Blue. You know, transported into Sheffield in the 1980s. It sounds like $100 million and was actually made in a studio slightly smaller than the table <laughs> we're looking at right now. Um Absolutely everything is is meticulous and yet still wild and abandoned. Um, it's a Trevor Horn job, so yeah, every course, little yeah. squeak is choreographed and controlled. Um, but to not to uh, to sort of hammer it down and tamp it down, but to release its spirit, it just sounds amazing every single time. And on the rare occasions when I play records at parties, I won't pretend I'm a DJ. Colleen's a DJ. <laughs> I just press play. Yes. But what you you can stick like you can stick the look of love on, and the floor will fill no matter how old mm. the people in the room, no matter what the event. Mm. It is just, it is the apogee and the zenith of what pop music can do. Mm. 
And it was a close run thing with Dare by the Human League, but okay. I think Lexicon of Love edges it. All right. There you go. I've sold it to you. Oh, I quite liked it anyway. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not a dreadful album. I've sold it to Clark or something, because yeah. I'm sure Cosmo, I'm sure you like it. I love it. I mean, it's part go. of the second British invasion and this, like, the, you know, my teenage years and Trevor Horn productions. Yeah. And I love it. Have you ever classic album Sundays did? I haven't done this one, but I have done, uh, I did some uh, Frankie Goes to Hollywood Oof. one with Trevor Horn. And his whole team in SARS studio wow. before they closed. And wow. then Trevor played, it was at the opening notes of um, Poison Arrow, actually, on, the, on that same piano. And my, the hair stood up on my arm. Well, a long time ago when this podcast was called Big Mouth, we had Anne Dudley in the studio. Oh, she's and amazing. she played on she our played wonky the piano. piano yeah. In the studio. And we all cried. Yeah, Clark of a Soldier to you. One, uh, maybe. But two, <laughs> it, people should go and listen to the Anne Dudley interview because it was amazing and totally explained she was fantastic. like what was going on, which I remember being quite confused about at the yeah. time. Yeah, it's but, still uh, in the archive. Sean, what was yours? Hajira. Hajira. It had to be because it's the only one left. Why? <laughs> exactly. Why? It was the first thing that came to mind and I agree with Colleen. I mean, one does have a sort of top 10 that just they change order at points. And I agree with Colleen. I hadn't realised it's, it's not a collection of songs. It is one feeling Divided into songs, and there is no album like it before or since. It speaks of liberation. It speaks of abandon. What she did was Joni Mitchell went on the road after hissing of summer lawns and everything getting too much. She just went on the road. She wore a wig at points in New Orleans and stuff like that to hide herself and hung out with everybody and anybody and just lived these experiences because she needed to escape and she just split up with someone. And you can feel that, and it's a real experience but musically, it's absolutely astounding. And she wrote differently because it was on the road. So she wrote instead of piano with the guitar. It has this fretless bass. Now, normally fretless bass. I mean, you go. It's Being a Paladino. Yeah. But this is, and I probably pronounced it wrong, Jaco Pastorius. Jaco Pastorius. Jaco Pastorius. And it sings. And there's a lot of songs about the freedom of the road, obviously. There's a lot of songs about bird life and all sorts of things like that. And what the music does is they ape all of the atmospheres and illusions within the songs. It is just glorious. And it is a kind of, I used to make me feel quite miserable and now it makes me feel really happy. I love it. I absolutely love it. It's, it's just, just up there. And if you have not heard this record, then you haven't been alive. <laughs> <laughs> to, to be clear, it didn't make me miserable. It was what I would listen to when I was miserable. <laughs> well, there we go. And well, that's all I can say. It's just absolutely glorious. And I go back to it all the time. We will obviously put selections from all of these albums onto the playlist. I'm Rob Hutton, and I grew up watching war movies with my dad, but my kids just don't get it. So I had to find someone to watch them with me. And that's me, Duncan Weldon, and I do get it. So I was only too happy to join Rob and guests such as Al Murray, Helen Lewis, and Satin Sangara as we rewatch the greatest war movies of all time. So join us on War Movie Theatre to talk about classics from Where Eagles Dare to Zulu to The Sound of Music. That's War Movie Theatre, wherever you get your podcasts. That is the end of the podcast. Thank you to Clark Collis for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you to Colleen Cosmo-Murphy for joining us. Thanks for having me. Please come again. Remember, listeners, you can get all the tunes on our rolling playlist on both Spotify and Tidal. The link is in the show notes. And um, Before we go, uh, regular listeners will remember last week, uh, beer writer Pete Brown chose the fantastic new Altered Images single, Mascara Streaks, as his tune of the moment. We couldn't get it cleared in time to play, but now Claire Grogan says we can play it. Yay. So we're going to play out with the taster of Mascara Streaks. From me and Sean and producer Robin Levin, thank you for listening. We'll see you next week. 
Here's Alter Images with Mascara Streets.